One of the uh, travails of being a grandfather is you've got to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, there are many things I'm glad to do with my grandkids, and uh, I'm happy to go many places with them, and I'm even happy to go to Chuck E. Cheese. It's just not one of my favorite ventures. But one of the things that inevitably happens at Chuck E. Cheese is one of our twin granddaughters, they're four years old, will inevitably say to me when they see Chuck E. Cheese, is he real? And it's hard to know exactly what to say. I'll say to Ainsley or to Hadley, well, there's a real person inside him. And they will say something like, yes, Papa, I know that, but is he real? And I said, well, if you mean is he real as a individual character, well, there's a real person inside him. And they'll say, I know that, Papa. I heard what you said, but is, is Chuck E. Cheese real? And I'll eventually say, he's kind of freaky looking to me. I, I, I don't know what to say to you, honey. Well, that's the way we sometimes think about the Bible characters. We're not necessarily confident, are they real? Are they real people? Do they really exist? Or are they just figures on a flannel board? Nehemiah was a real person, and Nehemiah lived in a real world. Nehemiah lived in a world that was brutal and harsh. Uh, Nehemiah lived in a world where there were really two categories of people, the wealthy and the impoverished. Uh, Nehemiah lived in a world that had historical context and, and was part of a historical trajectory. 1,000 years before Nehemiah lived, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. 600 years before Nehemiah lived, David killed Goliath. 160 years before Nehemiah was born, Daniel was taken into exile by the Babylonians. 33 years before the book of Nehemiah came into being, or was at least historically taking place, Esther was made the queen of Persia. 13 years before the events that we're getting ready to read about today, Ezra led a group of refugees back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a part of a historical trajectory. He was a part of the people of God. He's not just a flannel graph figurine of some sort. He was a real person that lived a real life, and he was a man that we could learn a lot, quite a bit from. Uh, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, and let me begin reading in verse 1 and read the entire chapter. And I'd like to speak with you this morning about bad news from a distant land, praying for the impossible. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now what happened in the month of Cheslev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of, the, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive 
and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments, and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. The book of Nehemiah opens with bad news and it's bad news from a distant land. The main character is introduced in the first verse and we, we don't know very much about him. We learn that his name is Nehemiah. We learn the name of his father and his brother. And then in verse 11, we learn his position as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire. And the circumstances and the situation for Nehemiah weren't that difficult. Nehemiah worked and lived in a very opulent setting. Uh, Nehemiah lived in the lap of luxury. Nehemiah was something like the right-hand man to the king. When we think of a cupbearer, we think maybe just of an individual that would taste the wine before the king drank it or the food before the king ate it in order to protect the king, to make sure that the food wasn't poisoned. But in the ancient world, the cupbearer often became a close confidant of the king. Next to the queen, there maybe was no one closer to the king than the cupbearer. And so he would have access to the king on a daily basis, and there would often develop some kind of rapport between the cupbearer and the king. Well, Nehemiah, living in the lap of luxury with a rather easy life, receives word that things aren't so good for the people of God that 800 miles away, the city of Jerusalem remained in ruins. There had been two groups of refugees that had returned to Jerusalem, one under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And you'll remember last week we described how Zerubbabel led in the rebuilding of the temple. It wasn't an opulent temple. It wasn't a massive structure like Solomon had built, but it was a beginning. And then the second group was led by a man called Ezra. And Ezra led the people of God in something of a revival or a spiritual renewal as the people returned to God 
as the scriptures were being read and they were repenting from sins and they were putting their, their trust in God. But the walls were still broken down. Uh, the city lay in ruins. The gates of the city had been burned. The, the Persians had, had literally, or actually the Babylonians had literally leveled the city to the ground. And so the people of God were in a very desperate condition in Jerusalem. Uh, they were very vulnerable and any enemy could easily invade the city and, and overrun the people of God again. So when Nehemiah hears this news, his response is a little bit surprising. He begins to weep and to mourn and to pray. And he does so for days on end. Look with me again in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice Israel lay in ruins, and Nehemiah is brokenhearted about it. Not just for the city, but also for the people. His heart was not callous and indifferent toward the people of God. His heart was soft and tender toward them. He'd never been to Jerusalem. He wasn't a part of the refugees that returned back to Jerusalem. He lived in luxury and extravagance. He was a confidant to the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time, Artaxerxes. And yet his heart was shattered for the people of God. And he expressed it in mourning and in, and in crying and in weeping and in, and in prayer. Jesus was not unlike that. Jesus himself, on his final approach to Jerusalem, looked out over the city from the Mount of Olives, and, and Jesus himself mourned and wept. In Luke chapter 21, Luke writes, When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Let me go on reading saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." Jesus had a love for Jerusalem. Jesus had a love for the Jewish people. But on that final visit to Jerusalem, he knew it was too late. And what God had done with the Assyrians to the northern kingdom, and what God had done with the Babylonians to the southern kingdom, God would do again this time with the Romans to the Jewish people and to the city of Jerusalem. They had hardened their heart against God. They had followed other gods. They did not have a love and a devotion to God, and God would punish his people because of their sin. Have you ever considered the possibility that the circumstances of your life right now may be the result of divine chastisement? 
that maybe God is disciplining you because he loves you. That maybe God is disciplining you because your ears are not quick to hear when he speaks. That your heart is not soft and receptive when he leads. That you've become enamored with all kinds of other things. You've, been, you've become enamored with the leisure opportunities of life. You've become enamored with all of, the, all of the free time that you've got and the, the time that you once devoted to God, the time that you once committed to your spiritual life, the time that you once gave to the things of God, you now find yourself allowing to slip through your fingers because your leisure has become more important than your God. Now, there's nothing wrong with leisure activities, is there? But there's something wrong when it becomes your God and it begins to interfere with your spiritual life and your spiritual growth and your commitment to the, to the people of God and to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of God were disciplined by God because God's patience ran out with them. But God's love had not run out on them. The author of Hebrews says that every father out of love disciplines his children. And the... the the life that you are now experiencing may be, may be God's punishment, God's discipline on you. You may say, well, pastor, I don't feel like it. My life's pretty good right now. I mean, I take all kinds of trips. I do all kinds of things. I, I know I'm in church about 45% of the time, but, but is that God's discipline? You know, we sometimes think privilege is a blessing when actually it's a curse. We sometimes think that that freedom is a gift from God when in reality it's a punishment from God. Ask the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler had life, anything he wanted, right at his beckoning call. And yet Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. Because rich people don't recognize that blessing in their minds is often a curse. It dissuades their heart. It lures them away. That's what happened to the people of God. And God sent the Assyrians to the northern kingdom and he leveled them. He sent the Babylonians to the southern kingdom and he destroyed them. And then Jesus, standing on the Mount of Olives, he he looks out over the holy city and he, and he says, it's too late for you. And he weeps over them. Well, that's the same response of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart was broken. Notice again in verse 4, he says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. What do you cry over? What brings you to tears? Is there anything that, that can bring you to your knees? For Nehemiah, it was, it was the fact that the people of God were in complete disarray and that they were in a fragile position. Nehemiah, he's not going to leave it there because notice it says at the end of verse 4, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
To fast is to give up something important like food in order to focus all of your attention for that period of time on God and a particular circumstance or situation that you may be praying about. In our day and time, it may be food, it might be technology. Could you ever imagine going without Facebook and Twitter and the internet for a period of time? And the time that we often waste on those things, saying, you know, I ought to have a greater concern for my mom and dad. My mom and dad don't know Jesus. My mom and dad are living in a fragile condition. My mom and dad could die, and without Jesus, there would be no hope of their salvation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set aside for two or three weeks all of these technological things that take hours of time from me. And I'm going to take a particular time in the evening when I'm usually trolling, uh, going through Facebook and, and looking through all of the posts of people who are lying about how good their life is and saying, my sweet friends, you know, find another word but sweet. Let me just say that, find another word but sweet. But, but here's, the, here's the point. And turning your attention to the God of heaven and praying for your mom and dad. Instead of bemoaning how poor they were as parents, how about pouring your heart out for God, for their salvation? That's what he did. He, he prayed for them. He wasn't going to allow the situation to go unaddressed. He was 800 miles away, but he believed he could make a difference, although he was 800 miles away. So what does he do? He prays for the impossible. That's the second thing I want you to notice. He prays for the impossible. And as we read through verses 5 through 11, actually we're listening in on the prayer of a spiritual giant. We're listening to a, to a significant person pour his heart out to God. And, and he guides us and leads us and helps us to understand something about prayer. That, that there's a good pattern and process to follow in prayer. Notice that he begins with adoration. He begins with adoration. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice he says, God is great and glorious. He is awesome and mighty. He is enthroned in heaven. He is true and reliable. He is faithful and caring. He's impartial and consistent. That is, he begins his prayer by focusing on God. That's what Jesus taught us about prayer as well, didn't he? When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven. The best place to begin with prayer is with God. Now, it's not wrong to launch immediately into the petition. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with concern. Uh, we're so consumed and burdened with a particular issue or circumstance or situation. It's certainly not sin to just fall on your knees before God and launch immediately into that, into that situation. But I want to suggest to you, it's not only theologically good to begin with God, it's also psychologically helpful. Because I find that when I pause and I begin with God, it, it helps 
formulate in my mind who God is. It reminds me that the God that I'm praying to is the God that can do the impossible. He's the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that has redeemed me and is sanctifying me. He's the one who loves me and has adopted me into his family. That is what, what Nehemiah is doing. He's telling God about how he thinks about him and how he feels toward him. And it's good to have the heart and the mind engaged together. The mind declares the facts about God and the heart saturates those facts with emotion. So he begins with adoration because adoration fixates him on God. So by the time he reaches his petition, he realizes that he's praying to a God that can answer his prayer because he's rehearsed certain facts that he believes about God and he's expressed it in a way that saturates how he feels toward God. But he moves from adoration to confession, from adoration to confession in verses 6 and 7. He acknowledges not only the sin of God's people, but he acknowledges his own sin as well. That is, he realizes that he has fallen short just as God's people have fallen short. So he says in verse 6, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. To say that he's praying before God is to say that he's praying in God's presence. To say that he's praying day and night is to say that he's praying with persistence. And he's praying on behalf of Israel, the sons of Israel, your servant. And so for them and for himself, he confesses their sins, the sins of Israel. He says, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. That is, he recognizes that the people of God have sinned, but he realizes he himself has sinned as well. And so he doesn't absolve himself of his sin as he prays for the sins and the forgiveness of others. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and not, have not committed and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He said, we've genuinely and authentically sinned against you. We haven't kept you first and foremost in our lives. We haven't put you above everything else in life. The fact that we have suffered, whether it's the suffering of abundance which we don't count suffering, but I can tell you it is a genuine curse if it draws a person away from God. Or, depra or, or poverty, he says, we've sinned against you. We've not followed your commandments. And so he, he wants them to, to understand, he wants God to understand that he recognizes their sin. So from adoration, he goes to confession, and from confession, he goes to petition. And the prayer that he's going to pray is a monumental request. It's the kind of request that can only be answered by God. It's a request that is focusing on God changing the heart of one person. 
And that one person is the most powerful man in the ancient world, Artaxerxes. There's one person that is keeping the walls from Jerusalem being rebuilt. And that man is the man that Nehemiah works for. If we had time, we could go back into the book of Ezra. The Jews started to rebuild the walls, but Artaxerxes stopped them. And only Artaxerxes could permit them to begin to rebuild those walls. But for whatever reason, his heart was set against the Jewish people and against the security of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is going to pray a big prayer. It's a It's an impossible prayer. It's the kind of prayer that only God can answer. Uh, Look with me in verse 8. He said, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's exactly what he did to the northern kingdom with the Assyrians and to the southern kingdom with the Babylonians. They didn't obey God, and God loved them, so God punished them. But, notice that adversative, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who love me have been scattered and were in the most most remote, remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. I will bring them back to Jerusalem. They're your servants, Lord, and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. When he mentions that God had redeemed them, he's thinking back to the Exodus. Uh, for, the, for the Jewish people, the Exodus was a monumental expression of God's love for his people. As he brought them out of the of the dominion of Egypt and from under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, they looked back on that time as a time when God demonstrated his love in an an inexplicable sort of way. So he's reminding God of what he did. And he says in verse 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. To revere God's name is to revere God, is to honor God. God's name represents his person. He is represented by his name. So we revere God's name when we revere God, when we live for God, when our hearts are holy and fully devoted to God, when absolutely nothing takes the place of supremacy in our lives but God. Not our education, not our profession, not our family, not our leisure. Absolutely nothing takes precedence over our devotion to God. It says, we revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, underline those words, this man. That man is Artaxerxes. That man is the man that determined the walls could not be rebuilt. That man is the one that determined that the people of Jerusalem would live in a very fragile, dangerous setting and could easily be overrun by their enemies. That's the man 
that Nehemiah worked for. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Well, let me, let me make three, three thoughts, three final thoughts about this, about this passage. The first one is this. This is what we focused on last week, but I think it bears repeating. Like Nehemiah, God knows where you are and what you're doing. His watchful eye is fixed on you. Don't despair. He knows where you are. But as you might feel like, my, my life is like I'm just running on a treadmill. I don't feel like I'm doing very much for God. Uh, I, I, I'm working at a convenience store. Or I'm changing oil at Valvoline. Or I'm putting trucks together at the Ford plant. Or I'm a receptionist in a lawyer's office. Or I'm a pediatrician... Uh, checking out babies day after day. I, I just don't feel like my life's really making a big kingdom impact. You know, Nehemiah was 800 miles away from Jerusalem. God knew right what he was doing. Nehemiah was living his life for God, doing the best that he could under a pagan king. And when God got ready to do something significant, he went to the right hand of Artaxerxes. He said, that's the man. That's the one I'm going to use. He wasn't a prophet like Elijah. He wasn't a priest like Aaron. He wasn't a king like David. He was a layman. He was an ordinary person who had an extraordinary love for an awesome God. Be where you are and be there fully for God. Be the most God-honoring receptionist in any office in the world. Be the most God-honoring employee that Ford has ever known. Be the most passionate and zealous person for God that has ever checked a person out at Macy's because God knows where you are. Don't despair. The second thing is this. When God's Spirit begins to move in our hearts, we will see sin and compromise that exist around us. When God begins to work in our hearts, we will see sin and compromise that exist around us, but not just around us, but in us. Our own hearts will be exposed. It's not we'll just see the sin and compromise that exist around us. We'll see our own sin and compromise. You'll notice that Nehemiah's prayer wasn't just a prayer about their sin and their compromise. He said, our sin and our compromise. We don't just see the sin of others. We see our own sin as well. We don't just point the finger at others. We point the finger at ourselves as we look in the mirror 
and we see there was a time when my heart for God was more zealous and passionate. My love for Him was more intense and vibrant. And it isn't what it ought to be. And rather than just pointing the finger at others, we look at ourselves and we see there's something absolutely wrong with me as well as with others. The third thing I want you to think about this morning is this. Do you, do you feel a sense of hopelessness today? Maybe you feel like life circumstances are just crushing you. You may be like the children of the children in Jerusalem, the children of Israel in Jerusalem, and you didn't even know God was at work 800 miles away on your behalf. That there was somebody praying for you and you didn't even you don't even recognize it. Maybe you feel hopeless and the circumstances of life are crushing you. God sees and God will move people to pray for you. But maybe maybe today as you feel that crushing weight of life and you look at the you look at the example of Nehemiah you understand that prayer really can make a big difference what does prayer do well prayer makes makes us wait on God it, it, it causes us to quit taking matters into our own hands it keeps us from manipulating and it causes us to be dependent on God and that's a good thing you may think well you know my my supervisor my employer if I could if I could have his position I could do it a hundred times better I could turn the whole whole company around the whole ship I could turn around if they just listen to me if they just do what I say I've got such insight and and such such fortitude about these things Notice that Nehemiah doesn't manipulate. He doesn't pout like a baby. He grieves over the people and he prays. And it keeps a person from manipulating. It keeps a person from complaining. It causes us to be dependent on God, and that's a good thing. What does prayer do? First, it causes us to wait. Second, Prayer clears our vision. It allows us to see things the way they really are. Over time, prayer clears away the fog of emotion and disappointment and despair. Initially, every, everything seems clouded and, and our vision seems out of kilter when we begin to pray about a circumstance or situation. We think that we know what needs to be done, but over time as we pray day and night, fasting and praying, as Nehemiah did, we begin to see things more clearly and our perspective becomes less slanted and distorted and we begin to see things from God's perspective. The second thing God, prayer does, it, it clears our vision. The third thing it does is it quiets our hearts. It allows us to take our fears and our worries and put them into the hands of a God that loves us, a God that sent his son to die for us, a God who sits on the throne of heaven 
See, prayer quiets our fretting hearts. Sometimes we find it easier to fret than to pray, don't we? In fact, it's a lot more soothing sometimes to fret than to pray. To toss and to turn, to allow the, the, the concerns of life to distract us. It's a lot easier, and sometimes it's a lot more satisfying than seeking the face of God and praying. Prayer quiets our hearts. Fourth, prayer energizes our faith. The more time we are in God's presence, the more confidence we have in Him. The more we worship Him in adoration and we confess our sin and we pour out our petitions to Him, the more our faith is strengthened. It causes us to be more confident toward God. Sometimes God puts us in a, between a rock and a hard place so He can teach us the importance of prayer. Finally, are you living in what you believe to be an impossible situation? From a human perspective, it looks like there's nothing that can be done. That's what it must have looked like for Nehemiah from a human perspective. What can I do? How can I change this man's heart? I'm 800 miles away from, from the city that I love and the people that need my help. But God is the God of the impossible. God loves to do the impossible. With God, all things are possible. God does his best work on the platform of our impossibilities. Maybe what we need to take away from Nehemiah this morning is this thought, nothing is impossible with God. Well, as we come to a brief time of commitment, it may be today that you're here and, and you feel like Nehemiah felt when he first heard the news. A crushing weight of despair. A, a cloud of confusion has just engulfed you about life in a particular situation about life. Maybe you would just like one of our, your pastoral staff to pray for you. If you'll come forward and they'll be glad to sit on the front row and you just whisper in their ear and let them say a prayer for you. Maybe you'd like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. If you come forward, one of our staff members will introduce you to someone that can talk to you privately and, and confidentially. Or maybe you've made a decision, hey, I, I want to join this church and we'd love to talk with you about the membership process. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and our worship pastor is going to come and, and lead us in a song. So I'm going to ask you if you'll stand. Let me lead us in prayer. Then we're going to sing together. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the privilege that we have to be gathered here, to be in your presence, to open your word, to worship your son who, who is our savior. And Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us. Your spirit would help us to hear what you're saying to us through the book of Nehemiah. He's not a flannel graph figure, Father. We know that. He's a real person. He was a real individual that lived a real life in a real world. And, and his story has been 
recorded for our instruction. And so we pray now that, that we would receive that instruction in Jesus' name.